very traumatic for you, but David, let's bring the people inside. Go ahead. Uh, Russo is wearing And if you come clothes. in, you will see all the trophies look, look. that Champ has gotten over the years. And David, I bet you every single game your father, Rick Flair, probably went to, correct? Are you kidding me? And how many games of yours did he go to? Can I count? None! Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. Uh, I am Brian Mann, and joining me is my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Uh, can you believe we, we've hit, this is our 20th episode. Can we quit yet? It, can, will people respect the amount of time we put in? We haven't hit, hit halfway yet, but I feel like we can really step away from this project now. I, mean, I, I, let, I already told you, Brian Mann, my date of expiration the the date i uh turn in my badge and gun here on the satellite of hate is when we hit the battle dome episode so i'm i'm in it until we see terry cruz invade the wcw arena so and, until then uh you're stuck with me brian and and the listeners are stuck with us as well here on uh the universe's favorite interracial cross-generational pop culture pro wrestling podcast dedicated to the genius question mark of one vincent james russo <laughs> terry cruz does not show up till like november this is the we're midway through may just know that's what you're that's what you're signing up for let's just like brian i we did review america and and we stayed until the bitter end until we got to president trump i'm gonna do this show until we get to president camacho so it's terry cruz <laughs> a bust for me on this podcast <laughs> okay thankfully we don't have to do this uh, alone we do always have someone here shouldering the burden with us and this week we are joined by our guest test subject uh he is a comedian and writer whose credits include at midnight comedy bang bang and funnier die you might know more as one half of the uh, absolutely fantastic podcasting duo, uh, the Doughboys. Nick Weiger is with us. Nick, thank you uh, so much for enduring this with us. Uh, guys, thank you. Um, I watched WCW when I was in college a lot, and this was a real trip down memory lane in terms of how much of my college days I wasted. <laughs> like, just what a... <laughs> What a wretched run of an awful promotion this was. <laughs> this was this was really the dregs. I mean, was this was because I, 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 I checked out before Terry Crews ever showed up. I actually didn't even know about that. But was it this was the year 2000 is considered kind of the nadir of WCW. Yes, they were already in the nosedive in 99. But this was where all hope was lost. Right. I really like for me, it was when we started seeing on camera Russo plus just so much David Flair. That was about the point where I was just like, man, this is, I mean, if there's, if there, there should be a, like, they should replace jumping the shark with like putting Vince Russo on camera. Like that should be the expression <laughs> for when something has passed its, its, its sell by date. Cause it is so, 
I mean, he, he, I know he had a lot of esteem as a as a writer for WWE. I guess called still called WWF then, right? Correct. That was kind of how he came to prominence. And but like he was he ever on camera at WWF? He originally was introduced as a character named Vic Venom. Uh, okay. who would like, he would like do like these, cause he was writing for the magazine and he would like just play little characters, but no, he was never a full-time on-screen character in WWF. He takes up so much, like he is just the protagonist of this episode and it's, it's <laughs> overwhelming. Were you mainly a WCW fan or were you a WWF fan at all? You're from California and oftentimes WCW is more associated with just the South. Right. You know, I think it was specifically, it was a couple of things. One was that I checked out of wrestling as a teenager. So I'd watched WWF as a kid and that was in the 80s, early 90s. And then, so when I returned to wrestling, it was via a college roommate and he watched WCW and then also when I was seeing WCW versus WWF, I was like, oh, these are the these are personalities I remember because that was their their whole thing. They had this stable of these old WWF guys they've recruited. And so for me, that was that was par- partly why I latched onto that. But yeah, we were we, we had a big contingent. I went to college at UCLA. We had a big contingent the UCLA dorms who would watch Monday Nitro pretty religiously. I didn't realize that was anomalous either. I thought I I didn't realize that was such a, a uh, an outlier. Yeah, usually the way it breaks down, and again, I don't, I don't want to get uh, into the political realm uh, when we're talking about demographics, but <laughs> usually, like, the South and the heartland tends to be WCW country, and the coasts tend to be uh, WWF strongholds. Interesting. I don't know if either of you guys noticed this, but there was definitely a Confederate flag that was being held up on the hard camera side multiple times during this show. I don't know if I was the only one who caught that. Yeah, I mean, that tr- I mean they were in Biloxi, Mississippi, right? Yeah, I mean, it is just sort of par for the course anywhere you you go right. to in in Biloxi Mississippi. I mean to to be fair Brian it was a simpler time. It was 2000. People didn't know any better. <laughs> so we've established uh Nick where you were in the year 2000. Let's take a look and see where the culture was at in the year 2000. Now Nate, we've you know this is songs of the summertime. We've gone through, we've looked at all the musical charts and I had to I had to tell you Nate, I just really dig for something for us to talk about because Maria Maria is still on the top of the pop charts. Uh, you got Kryptonite and Three Doors Down over on the rock charts. So, Nate, we're going to look at the country charts, which I guess ties into our recent Confederate talk here. I, I, well, I thought it was either the Confederate talk or uh, you were convinced by that uh, review away with Braden and Wade to uh, check out uh, Braden and uh, Bartender Dave to check out Pure Country. And now you're on <laughs> no. like a Willie Nelson kick. That was not it at all. Uh, but no, let's take a look at what was topping the country charts uh, the day of this Nitro episode. Just like a couple weeks ago when we had Destiny's Child and we're starting to see the beginning of the, the Bay Hive is starting here in the year 2000. This week saw the number one, the first number one song from Toby Keith with How Do You Like Me Now? How do you like me now? Can you believe we've been putting up with this fucking guy for 17 years? <laughs> oh, this this wasn't even the uh, the pick though of Toby Keith. That would come, I guess, a year or so later when uh, when we had yeah the, well, a certain event happened that he latched. Well, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I didn't want to I didn't want to talk about the the event that preceded Toby's fame, but uh, yeah, he became uh, the all American country singer, and uh, yeah, he's still doing it today. 
Toby Keith really responsible for the most respectful tribute to 9-11, uh, talking about uh, putting a boot up Osama's ass, right? That was, <laughs> was it the Angry American? Was that what his song was? Yes, Letter from an Angry American. Great. Brilliant. Yeah, what I'm actually surprised by the country charts is that uh, number one wasn't Kurt Hennig's uh, Rap is Crap. <laughs> I really thought number that would still be a solid at the top of the year. charts. <laughs> yeah. No, that actually did chart, though. Uh, and they, did they, it really? I was living, well, I was, playing, I was living in Atlanta at the time, and they played it on the country stations, and I remember being at the Nitro where they played that song live, and it was a very tense environment in the crowd because... <laughs> Atlanta is, uh, I, I don't think the crowd was as diverse as they expected it to be, so it was, uh, it was an <laughs> odd feeling in the air when that song started to play. Man, it was such a, like, the thing I remember is that he just couldn't sing. It, he was, it was just <laughs> such a bad, and they didn't get, like, someone else to sing it and just have him, you know, do lip flap. Like, they actually had him sing it, and he, and he couldn't carry a tune at all, so it was, like, so bad. But then the fact that it was, like, they were still playing it on country stations when it's such an yep. awful song i guess people were just responding to the message which is oh weird. it was definitely no the message at the time was something that was resonating with a particular part of the country <laughs> I, would, I would say <laughs> well, well brian this, this leads to a to an interesting topic here and we can we can go around the room and include brother nick with this because uh you are from atlanta i am uh, a, a son of the south as well uh, so Brian, I, I know even though you know you're you're a New Yorker now, you're a coastal elitist. Uh, <laughs> you still got your roots. You still got your heritage, man. So uh, who is your favorite country singer, Brian Mann? I mean, I'm gonna. I guess I'm gonna like cop out and say Johnny Cash. Like that's the that's the easy one to go to. But I feel like that sort of transcends. It isn't really what country is now. But you, you got to go Johnny Cash. Okay, okay. What about you, Nick? Uh, you know, I my pick would be. And I don't know how – I honestly don't know how how famous he is in the country realm, but he's an artist. Bobby Duncan like. Jr.? Are you going to say Bobby Duncan Jr.? <laughs> no, I was going to say <laughs> – I was going to throw out Junior Brown, uh, who's a mm. guitarist, singer, and and he, I have a couple of his albums, and I, I, I think – I mean, he's just, like, very talented. I don't really listen to a lot of country, but he's one guy I responded to. I guess if I was going to go more famous uh, – I don't, I you know, Merrill Haggard maybe, maybe that would be my pick from someone who's a little bit more well known. Okay, okay. Uh, let's see. My grandmother, uh, well, one of my grandmothers on, on my mom's side, uh, she grew up in uh, Lubbock, Texas. So every time we went out to visit, Willie Nelson and Ray Charles were always playing. Like it was this, like like I know Spotify didn't exist back then, but she had something programmed on her stereo where it'd be a Willie song and a Ray song, which just was <laughs> wonderful and confusing at the same time. Uh, Darius Rucker's great because it's always good to see uh, diversity in country music. Although, does Darius, uh, does Darius only count after a certain year? Like, does Hootie count, or did he have to wait until he officially made that, that ooh, crossover? It's a, it's a solo career, right? Did he, yeah. did he ever have yeah. a solo? I don't, I don't know if Hootie counts. Yeah. Because, yeah, he he had, he had matter of fact, Darius Rucker had a weird album in between Hootie and the country where he made this uh, R&B record called Back to Then. Like, Snoop Dogg's on it, Jill Scott's on it. Like oh, it's wow. A, it's a full-fledged R&B record that's pretty good, but I think nobody listened to it yeah. because the Hootie fans weren't coming to R&B and the R&B fans weren't going to listen to the dude from Hootie. Uh, so I think he said, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and, and cash this check and start singing country ditty, <laughs> and uh, that, that's when that's when the country stuff took off. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna go Garth Brooks. I'm gonna go Garth oh, Brooks, yeah. my all-time favorite 
not only for his uh his his great songs like Friends in Low Places, but for that one time where he tried to pretend like he was a whole different person. Oh yeah, when he put on a wig, that that was beautiful. The, the Chris Gaines era. Yeah, the other episode of SNL where Garth hosted, but then Chris Gaines was. The yeah, but Chris guest. Gaines was. <laughs> I'm realizing as we're talking through this that Darius Rucker kind of pulled off the reverse Chris Gaines. He had like kind of the mainstream success (laughs) and then he he adopted this whole country persona and that took off. Wow. We've put it off as long as we can. We actually do have to talk about this episode of Nitro, guys. So so let's go ahead and jump in it. All right. I am going to show you what it's like to walk around with your humanity stripped just like I have, Sting. Welcome to my nightmare. So tonight's show opens with a full history of Sting and Vampiro's relationship, while never actually explaining why Vampiro turned on Sting. Uh, Nick, did <laughs> did this bring up any fond memories for you, this uh, opening video package? Well, I really liked Sting. I remember he was one of the wrestlers of this era who I thought was always bringing it. I'm not. I'm, you guys would probably have more familiarity with it. It's fresher for you, so you might have a different take. But my memory of it is that Sting was always still felt like a professional and so i was always happy to see him appear the vampiro angle i'd kind of forgotten about that he was like his clone or like his dark version (laughs) what was it exactly (laughs) uh that's the thing they never defined it i think they just said that they were the brothers in paint literally the the only thing they shared was they both had face paint very strange yeah i mean like it's you know vampiro just looks like an unappealing sting is a thing like Sting <laughs> looks so much cooler, and Vampiro looks like the he looks like the sloppy con version, like the 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 guy who's like kind of got some really half-assed cosplay. Uh, he's wearing to like a not even like real Comic Con, like some like the the Tucson Comic Con, and <laughs> and and just like this this match felt pretty listless to me. Like the House of Pain is like okay, all right, we're gonna get some sort of you know. Uh, we're we're gonna get this this crazy kind of gimmick match up top. Maybe it'll be a little bit intense here, but no, it, it felt like there really weren't too many stakes to it, despite kind of the uh, the the arena they'd set up. Yeah, no, the the show and a change of pace for them actually started with a kind of a hot main event, and it was a House of Pain match, which was pretty much a cage match, but there's a roof covering it, and the only way to win is to handcuff your opponent to the side of the cage, which, Nate, this was this was like lockdown, right? I was going to say, this is like the rough draft of Lethal Lockdown uh, before Russo, you know, worked out the kinks. Uh, and I, 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 don't, I didn't know what was going on with this thing. I... I I think this entire Sting Vampiro feud is something that becomes a recurring theme when you talk about these nitros that Vince Russo has helmed, and that is lost potential. Because I do think there's a way that this feud could have been compelling, even though uh, Vampiro does kind of come across as the Tucson Comic Fest to Sting's <laughs> San Diego Comic Con. Uh, but there's a way that you could have told this story about these guys that 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 had a friendship and, and Vampiro looked at Sting as a mentor, but then he got disillusioned or whatever. You could have told a cool story, but as you and I have seen over these past few weeks, Brian, any chance to make a compelling angle or a, a compelling feud has just felt so rushed and, and so half-assed and half-baked that it. I don't think either guy really comes out looking good when this is over. Before Sting can enter the ring, Vampiro shackles the door closed, so these two just sort of yell sweet nothings at each other until Sting climbs to the roof of the cage. Sting then beats in the roof of this cage with his baseball bat until a section of the ceiling gives away, instantly killing the need for a roof in the first place. (laughs) 
Sting then drops down and lays out Vamp with punches and a stinger splash. Uh, these two just sort of take turns throwing each other all around the ring. Vampiro attempts a Hurricane Rana, but Sting counters with a powerbomb. Sting then shackles Vamp to the cage for the win. Uh, after the bell, Sting continues to beat on the defenseless Vampiro. He then splashes him a couple times and walks up the ramp. The lights, they go out. He turns around. The cage starts to rise up. And when the lights come back on, Vampiro is gone. He has disappeared. Wait a minute. Where's Vampiro? Where did he go? And Steve's wondering, where did the man go? In a weird way, I almost feel like it was all downhill from here on, on this show. As, as weird and terrible <laughs> as this was, this, this might have been one of the high points. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It was, you know, I was... You'd set it up to me, Brian, when we were communicating via email, is that this was a this was a really awful uh, episode of Nitro. And starting at this one, I was like, I was like, all right, well, this is a little, you know, it's a little unclear what's going on, but this is watchable enough. Uh, it's a little low energy, but this is fine. And then, yeah, after that, I mean, just like for this to be the high point in hindsight is just like so depressing where the show ended up. I think, and, and this might surprise you, Brian, but I'm going to take a moment and uh, say some positive things about that man called Sting. You never miss the opportunity. Um, <laughs> because it occurred to me when, when uh, Nick was talking earlier, what I've liked about Sting, not only through this run of uh, WCW Nitro in the year 2000, but also in his TNA run, where so much of it was bad booking, it's that Sting was always a professional. Like, even if what was surrounding these matches wasn't great, Sting, you know, Sting wasn't the guy to phone it in. And we saw it last week in the Jarrett match, and we saw it again with this. Like, this this wasn't great, uh, but I think Sting and, and, and Vampiro, to some extent, elevated it to uh, something greater than it, it should have been. Because if you think about it, this entire setup for this match doesn't make sense. The The way that you win the match doesn't... Like, it's, it's counterintuitive to a cage match. And so... Uh, I, I thought both guys did the best they could with what they were given. Uh, unfortunately, what they were given wasn't wasn't that great to begin with. In the parking lot, Brian Clark is shown arriving at the arena. Shane Douglas then attacks one half of Chronic from behind. Somehow, in all of his excitement, Scott Hudson is able to notice that Goldberg's monster truck is parked off in the distance. <laughs> In the back, elsewhere, General Rection is addressing his MIA troops, Van Hammer, Lash LaRue, and Chavo Guerrero. Rection asks to see their war faces, and they all they attempt some comedy, and it's pretty clear this group is going nowhere fast. Rection is disgusted <laughs> by their performances, so he slaps LaRue, a coaching tactic he would use in FCW. Rection then gives everyone new names. Van Hammer is now Major Stash, Lash is Corporal Cajun, and Chavo is Lieutenant Loco. Rection then introduces the new recruit, Tylene Buck, who is now going by the name Major Guns. Her entrance is accompanied by the sound of 5,000 boners from the live crowd as they popped huge for this. We have a new cadet, and believe me, they're the biggest set of bombs I've ever seen. Major Guns fall into line! Up until this point, the vile sexism of Vince Russo really hasn't shown its head, but it made its debut full force, loud and proud on tonight's episode. Yeah, that the 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 sexism, the uh, objectification, that might be the MVP of the <laughs> show tonight, Brian. Uh, but but real quick, I, I want to get your thoughts and Nick's as well, because uh, a week or so ago, we were talking about the Misfits in Action. And I remember having fond memories of this group, of, of this unit of... of uh, castaways and castoffs being put together and 
so far, just seeing this opening kind of segment, uh, I was not uh, I was not too thrilled. Like I love Lash Larue, I, I might be the biggest Lash Larue fan this side of the uh, Mississippi, uh, and and I've always been a Chavo Guerrero fan. But uh, yeah, wasn't, wasn't wasn't too keen on this particular segment. Yeah, I mean, in theory, like this kind of Suicide Squad sort of you know formation of a of a team that doesn't really make sense, but we'll just sort of have like you were saying, they just like the, these these castaways and these guys who don't really fit anywhere else try to try to work together as a unit. Like that's sh- that's an interesting setup, but yeah, I, I think it's just the broad comedy is like so much is relying on these guys just trying to to do these very broad, uh, very crass jokes. And I mean, those are hard to pull off, even if you're, you know, even if you're a skilled performer. And then, you know, for for someone who's, you know, maybe a a, a good wrestler who can cut good promos, but maybe doesn't have the 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 sharp comedic sense that that is maybe needed for something like this. It's it's just a lot to ask. Yeah, and this is something we would see repeatedly, and we'll see many times here in the coming months where. Russo had come from WWF, and he would try things that worked well in WWF without, I guess, never realizing he didn't have the talent to do sure. it. Or, I, yeah, I don't know what it was, but yeah, these guys, like, they're a far cry from, say, Too Cool or Edging Christian or some of the other things you'd see over on the other side. <laughs> but Adriz, as I said that, all those people did their best work after Russo left. So really, <laughs> these guys are just like the WCW version of the oddities and these other really shitty factions that happened while Russo was in WWF. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, like if, if you think about too cool or, uh, you know, some of those other comedy groups that were purely comedy in the WWE, I think it was a combination of a, you didn't have Russo being so blunt with the comedy, but also the product was hotter, and I don't know if the product was hotter because Vince Russo was no longer there, or if it's a chicken and egg, egg situation. But yeah, though, like I remember loving Too Cool, and I remember loving the Misfits in action. But I bet if I popped in Too Cool right now on YouTube, I would have a fond reaction to them, which is something I did not have at least for this segment with the Misfits on Nitro. It's weird because what I remember of Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara was his partner, right? That was the other guy that, that came on yeah. from, and I remember that being a thing at, at like the the I, I guess they were I guess it was message boards I was reading at the time. I remember that being a thing where WCW fans were pretty hyped that it was this was happening because you know so much of like Raw and War was like credited to Russo and like this was this genius. This was like the this was the David Chase of wrestling. This was this guy who had this 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 visionary way of of running things. And he was going to come to WCW, and he was going to he was going to take this, you know, declining, flagging promotion, and turn it around. And instead, he just became this anchor and just 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 completely sunk it. And, and it's it's really crazy how that was just so contrary to what everyone's expectations were. Well, and I think we've seen this in subsequent interviews with Russo after the fact is that he was he was definitely a fan of his own ideas, and he was a okay. fan of people that entertained him. But I don't think he was all that great at being able to look at a talent and see what they could do and what they excelled at and maybe stepping back and saying, how can my writing help uh, accentuate the performer rather than vice versa? He kind of gave this interview a couple years ago where he kind of famously said that 
this wrestler named Frankie uh, or um, this wrestler named Christopher Daniels had zero personality whatsoever. And Nate, I mean, you remember in TNA, he was one of the most entertaining guys in that company after Russo left because he was actually allowed to show his actual personality. And he and Kazarian were like two of the funniest people. Like they were the comedy on that show for an entire year. But while Russo was there, he saw nothing in this guy because he wasn't able to do Russo's, you know, dick jokes. Yeah, and I think part of that comes from being able to work with the talent. And it, it can't just be, you know, a one-way street where I'm going to force you into this character. You know, whereas I think what made Daniels and Kaz so great when they were in on Impact is you could tell they had input into what they were doing on, on TV. And, and you could tell, like, even in something as awful as the Claire Lynch uh, angle, like, the, the the little touches, the scarves, the the apple teenies, like these are touches that made the best out of a bad situation. Whereas with Russo, so many times it felt that he tried to peg characters into situations that didn't set them up for success. And so we talked about it last week, Norman Smiley. Like Norman Smiley's a funny guy, but he's also a great wrestler. There should be a way you can combine those two attributes, but instead we're going to have Norman running around with uh, Ralph is showing his ass crack all day. Like that's that's not entertaining. What, you weren't a fan of what? Of what Norman Smiley was used on this, <laughs> what he was doing on this episode. <laughs> More of that later, guys. So, in the arena, Chronic makes their entrance with the stolen tag team title belts. Mark Madden reacts to the debut of Major Guns in the last segment by saying, "Fire in the hole." What the fuck do we think this is even alluding to, guys? <laughs> I did not get this double entendre. <laughs> yeah, I, ass- I assumed it was a very long road where he was suggesting. Some sort of <laughs> urinary tract infection or something, perhaps as a result of a venereal disease, he would contract because he was so horny. I don't, I don't, it's, it's like, it's giving, even that's giving him too much credit. I have no idea. <laughs> so, uh, Brian Adams gets on the mic and he makes some lame 420 joke before calling out Shane Douglas. Now, out comes Douglas all by himself. Shane reveals that Buff has been suspended for 30 days before announcing that the wall is his new tag partner. Now, why do you guys think Buff Bagwell had been suspended for 30 days? I, you know what? I assumed it was an injury, but I, uh, he, he actually was legitimately suspended, you're saying. He was legitimately suspended for 30 days. Nate, do you know why he was suspended? I mean, I, the obvious guess would be something involving, you know, PDs. <laughs> Nate, it's 2000. There, no, there's no drug test. It's 2000. <laughs> <laughs> well, well judge, judging by the character of Buff Bagwell we've seen on this uh, on this program, how he is, Mr. Steal Your Girl, I'm going to say Buff got caught with his hand in the cookie jar and uh, was sent home. Well, uh, unless that cookie jar is beating up a WCW crew member and yelling racial slurs at him, that is not oh, what boy. it was. Oh, At the previous week's Thunder, Buff's entrance got messed up, and he handled it like any responsible performer would by punching crew member Daryl Miller while yelling racial slurs at him. He was charged with battery, and WCW took him off TV for 30 days. Now, you might be wondering, how was this guy not prosecuted? Well, it's because Lex Luger and Elizabeth, who witnessed the entire attack, claimed that they were not able to hear anything because Goldberg's monster truck was nearby. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) The old Goldberg monster truck defense. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, why, why, why'd you have to go and 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 pull back the curtain, Brian? Like I, I was a fan of Mister Steel, your girl, Buff Bagwell, uh, and now I, I, I can never look at him the same again. You, you and me both, Nate. I do. I, I think I might have to retire my Buff Daddy jersey. This guy was like. He was the top of the pops for me. He was. I mean, that was my my Twitter profile for the longest time. I've got to get. I've. I hate this. I've got to say goodbye to Marcus Alexander Bagwell. 
I saw a WCW house show, I think in 99, they came mm-hmm. to the, the then the Great Western Forum in LA, and Buff Bagwell was like the highlight. Like he really like worked the crowd and was just and put on a great show. I think he actually his they they stuck him with a match where he had to wrestle David Flair with one hand tied behind his back, and he made it a, he made it a super entertaining match. And hearing this, Buff, I'm sorry, buddy, you're not the stuff. <laughs> so uh, we now get an impromptu tag team title match. There's some brawling uh, off the jump, but Shane Douglas just quickly abandons the match and leaves, forcing the wall to fight on his own. And there just so happens to be tables set up all around the ring. Who would have known, guys? So the wall, uh, the wall puts Clark through one of them and then splashes Adams through the other. However, Chronic pretty much no-sells these attacks, goes back to double-teaming the wall. Chronic then puts the wall through the announcer's table, brings him back into the ring, and pins him, winning the tag team titles in the least babyface way imaginable. After the match, <laughs> paramedics then tend to the wall, who then just insists on attacking these helpless civilians, and he then chokeslams one of them through a table at ringside. Uh, I couldn't tell if this was supposed to be his babyface turn. I couldn't tell if Chronic are now heels. Uh, overall, not an offensive segment, but definitely not a logical one either. Truly, the most confused I was during this episode. Like, the, the, I was just—I had no idea what was happening. I didn't know uh, why the wall was left solo in the arena. I like—I didn't know what that was all about. And then, uh, like. When he tur- when he turned on the paramedics, I was like, "What is happening? Why why is he attacking these guys?" I just, I was so just there were there was worse stuff in the show, but this was the most baffling. Yeah, I was just oddly this is not even the worst uh, title change on the show. <laughs> but but see, now that you've introduced new information to the program, Brian, I'm thinking that wasn't even part of the script. I'm thinking the wall was so disillusioned by what was going on in this episode that he wanted to go the buff route and just beat up a civilian. <laughs> And uh, get that thirty day uh, thirty days off with uh, wow. pay. So I think that was what was going through his mind. So you think that's you think that was a shoot? The, he actually he actually beat the <laughs> shit out of some paramedics. I mean, yeah, he's like you know, he saw what happened in the match. He's like this booking makes zero <laughs> sense. I, I, I'm not gonna do this. I'm gonna take the buff route. I'm gonna beat some civilian up, get paid, and go home. <laughs> that's a that's a great theory. Backstage. In Eric Bischoff's office, he and Kimberly are discussing ways to spend DDP's money when they are interrupted by Disco Inferno. Disco complains about being stuck with the Mamelukes and says that he just wants to work with his friends again. Bischoff tells him he doesn't care and he can just do whatever he wants. This was a pretty accurate recreation of WCW booking at the time. Uh, The cat then brings in Terry Funk, who threatens Miller on the way in. Eric tells Funk to hand over the hardcore title and just go ahead and retire. When Funk says no, the cat attacks him from behind and starts beating on him. Outside the arena, Norman Smiley and Ralphus are digging through a trash can looking for food. In just one week of unemployment, these two have been reduced to panhandling. <laughs> Between the two of them, they have only a dollar twenty-five. Ralphus, I got a great idea. Oh. We're going to get a job, right? Yeah. I got a great idea. Come with me. Oh, this is a great opportunity, Ralphus. Guys, how did we feel about Act 1 of the Norman Smiley Ralphus Chronicles? Man, it, it was I was waiting for it to go somewhere. I was wait I, like I was like what okay, this is going to we're going to see Smiley in in a match by the end of this episode. And that it was just like no, it was just like these little vignettes. It was just like these little skits we were cutting to. It's just kind of a de- I, I think Nate was saying this earlier, just kind of a depressing way to use Norman Smiley. 
it would have been so much better if we had had some uh, some some clues dropped along the way in the weeks leading up to the firing angle. Like maybe Norman Smiley was a little too loose with his money. Oh sure. Maybe he you know liked to maybe he liked to throw his money around at the bars and stuff. Or uh, we've never been told that like this is a dude that's extravagant, or he's got a lot of women on the road, or or you know he likes to drink. So the, the idea that they were digging in the trash <laughs> looking for food one week later. In a different city, like it, it. That was the first thing that took me out of this segment. The second was, God bless Ralphus for uh, you know making the most of his fifteen minutes. But um, <laughs> I'm already done with Ralphus. In the arena, the Filthy Animals make their entrance, and they have brand new music. This is the first time we're hearing the uh, the Filthy Animals theme song, and they all have some item of plunder: trash cans, chairs. Hoovy does his juice gimmick, and Conan calls out Terry Funk for a three-on-one hardcore match. Funk's music plays, and the cat drags out the beaten Terry Funk. Rey Mysterio, Hoovy, and Terry Funk then just take turns beating down on the old man. Terry Funk takes multiple chair shots of the head before MIA runs out to make the save. Lieutenant Loco flies over the top rope into the ring and nails Ray with a shoulder block. A brawl ensues. Disco Inferno then runs down and he helps the animals for some unknown reason. Out comes Booker T in his Brooks Brothers finest. He lays out Hoovy, rolls Funk onto the juice, allowing Terry Funk to retain his title. This was not the end, though, as as Major Guns then prances into the ring, rips off her shirt, and starts giving mouth-to-mouth to Terry Funk. Again, stellar treatment for our retired legend, Terry Funk. Man, I mean, so what were the allegiances here? Disco Inferno is, is was he, wait, who, who, he was fighting against, he was fighting on, with the filthy animals, yes? Yes, because he decided he wanted to be with his friends again. And then Booker T came in to, cl- to, clean up, to clear everyone out because he was protecting the legend, Terry Funk. That was the idea, I guess? Or did they have some storyline that connected them? There was no storyline yet. I think he will be joining the uh, MIA very soon, which... Okay. Do, by the way, Nick, do you know what his his MIA name was? No. Think of, like, the most offensive <laughs> thing it could be. <laughs> okay, I won't say it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, his name was uh, G.I. Bro. Oh, boy. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Um... You know, I, Booker. I, I liked Booker T. I, I thought he was a was a good wrestler. I'm, I'm honestly not sure what. Like, I, did he have a good post WCW career? Because I kind of checked out of wrestling after WCW. Oh, he he had the best post WCW career out of any of these guys. Oh, he's good. Still, he's he's still on commentary with WWE. Oh, great. Okay. Um, but yeah, I always liked Booker T. And then it was like, was he injured too? Because we didn't really see him in this episode, except for that. I, he. I think he was injured. They never said he was supposed to face Scott Steiner for the last pay-per-view. Then he was just suddenly off TV, which for WCW right. isn't a surprise. But, yeah, he might have been injured. He might be back again. They, they never once mentioned why Booker T was missing time, did they? No, and, and it's funny because when they first did the reboot, you know, the one of the first characters that we saw kind of bristling against the uh, authority of the new blood in Russo and Bischoff was Booker T. And, you know, he had the thing with Scott Steiner and he, he saved Jeff Jarrett from losing the title to Scott Steiner. And, and they were doing some halfway decent things with Booker T. And then he just kind of disappeared. And now he's back 
uh, helping Terry Funk for some reason. And, uh, yeah, so I, I know where this leads. Uh, GI <laughs> bro is, is, is on the horizon. Uh, but I'll tell you what, Brian, you mentioned Terry Funk, and week to week, that's one of my gripes about this show was the treatment of Terry Funk. But I would argue, out of all we've seen Terry Funk endure, hand up a chicken, uh, fighting uh, Ralphus with his butt crack, like this might have been the best week of work for Terry Funk. Right. Yeah. Oh, and he was on his back the entire time. Yeah, this might have been the easy, easiest payday for Terry Funk, uh, and, and he got a kiss from uh, Major Gun. So, you know, it's all, all, all in a good, nice I work. I was my buddy... Oh, just real quick, I was talking to my buddy Mike Carlson, who's a huge wrestling fan, before uh, I recorded this, and he he brought up that they were doing this Terry Funk was, uh, like, he's too old to wrestle storyline in, like, 2000. That was basically it, right? And he's still wrestling. <laughs> like, he was, like, he was like 56, and they were doing that, and now he's, like, 73, and he's still, like, he, <laughs> is he, he's either wrestling or making a comeback, right? Yep. He still does appearances. Uh, I don't know when his actual, because, I mean, he would come back and wwf six years after this and he was definitely right. still doing indies a couple years ago so yeah i don't know when the official he had to set it down but i think he still makes appearances at shows yeah it's crazy outside a white limo arrives in the parking lot and an angry rick flair gets out in the background we again see that goldberg monster truck somehow norman smiley and her office have found their way into this building they don't have tickets they don't work here but they are backstage the two find a rogue popcorn vendor and they beg for a job selling popcorn this was Smiley's ingenious plan, not calling Vince McMahon or Paul Heyman, <laughs> but rather just slinging snacks to the crowd for an undisclosed fee. So all we need is a chip. We want to sell popcorn for you. You want to sell popcorn? Yes, we need a job. You want a job selling popcorn? I promise you we'll do our best. You think you can handle it? I know we can. It's a serious business. I know it is. If sir. I didn't need the help, I wouldn't consider oh, it. Oh, Fine, you guys got the job. Oh, Here's job, your bro. shirts, okay? Oh. You get one chance. If you screw up, forget about it. Here's oh, your boxes sir. here. Thank you very I'll much. Keep it clean, okay? And Thank don't you. eat the profit. Did we need the first segment to get to this place? Maybe if we just started here, right. I, I could, I could, I could accept it a little bit more. Well, yeah, it, it would have made sense if, like, at the start of the show, you know, or the, or even in the middle of the show, they had something earlier today, you know, recorded at the arena with Norman Smiley talking to the popcorn vendor. But uh, no, not only did we have them outside digging through the trash, but now we have Norman Smiley. And Ralph is walking up to a popcorn vendor in the middle of a show that has already started, where popcorn has already been sold, getting a job. So, uh, Brian, man, I can believe a lot of things that professional wrestling tells me to believe on this TV screen. I do not believe that somebody at this uh, arena in Biloxi was uh, so understaffed that he hired these two men off the street to sell popcorn at this event. He is a terrible small business owner. If he did not have a backup plan of how to distribute his product up until this point. Yeah, it would seem like the bulk of his sales had already concluded. I mean, he was just <laughs> – what What was this area he was standing in? It was just sort of this – not like I guess he was the backstage popcorn vendor. He didn't look like he was in an area that crowds were traveling through. So, just selling exclusively to talent. Right, yeah, yeah. Just selling to the boys. <laughs> yeah, hope Lex Luger is hungry. Uh, yeah, it's – I mean, it was it was just so bizarre, and then that he's—I guess he's just hiring them on the spot. I just—I didn't understand what was happening. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Brian. It's all making sense now because didn't we review an episode of Nitro where the catering table consisted of a garbage bag full of popcorn? Yes, it was just popcorn. <laughs> so maybe this is this is a step up now. We've gone from garbage bags full of popcorn to honest to goodness popcorn vendors. That was part of the problem with the Russo era is that, you know, at the, the talent was so unhappy because all they were being fed backstage was popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
popcorn and surge cans with Sid Vicious on them. <laughs> we go back to Bischoff's office, and Flair bursts in and demands to see Russo. Eric says he has no idea where Russo is, so Flair leaves, and Bischoff tells the cat to go warn Russo that Flair is looking for him. Back in the arena, Chris Candino and Sonny make their entrance. Candido says that they're the first couple of sports entertainment and challenges any other couple to a match for the cruiserweight title. This brings out Crowbar and Daphne, who I don't think are a couple. Nate, just last week and later in the show, David and Daphne are still together. So are we being told that Crowbar and David and Daphne have some sort of polyamorous relationship between the three of them? (laughs) Hey Brian, this is the year two thousand, man. Don't don't hate on love, man. <laughs> love finds its love can blossom in many forms. It was crowbar was introduced basically because David Flair was so bad in the ring, right? Oh like, yes, that was the was practical the, reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they they basically just <laughs> needed someone who could actually wrestle, and so they brought crowbar on, and. So yeah, then, then it was just like because like it would make more sense if they're going to be coupled for it to be David Flair in this match, but they just they were just like oh well that's not going to be an option. Um, it was it was really yeah this was uh, maybe was this one of the more, the more baffling uh, title change you were referring to where this yes. cruiserweight title match suddenly became a, a a mixed tag team match. It was very strange. Yeah, it was just one of those things where Russo would do a thing to just get a rise out of himself, I guess. Uh, Crowbar and Candido start things off, and Candido lands a pretty decent head scissors takedown. Miss Hancock then comes down the ramp for her endless talent crusade. She's showing up once again. Uh, The women get involved, and so Crowbar, the baby face, lifts up Tammy for a suplex, and Candido just stands there and doesn't do anything, but then Tammy reverses it into a roll-up for a two. Candido then tries to slam Daphne, but she kicks him in the nuts. The first of, I think, about two dozen low blows on this show. (laughs) Then gives him a DDT, but only gets a two. Uh, They then brawl to the outside. Some shitty chair shots are thrown around. Miss Hancock then gets on the mic and promises Tony Schiavone a treat tonight. She then takes her hair down and begins dancing. Crowbar, hypnotized by the sight of a woman's bare leg, starts walking up the ramp to her. This allows Candido to attack Crowbar from behind. Back in the ring, Daphne rolls up Tammy for the three count. After the match, the ref hands the belt to Crowbar, who hands it to Daphne to put on him. However, Daphne decides that she is the champ. Uh, so, as of this, the end of this match, Daphne and Crowbar are co-cruiserweight champions. Nate, this ha- like this segment wasn't over, but let's talk about this before we continue. Nate, this has to be worse than the than like, the Oklahoma win, right? I mean, as terrible as that was, at least it was part of like a larger story, and they at least built to it. Yeah, this seemed like a a remix of a bunch of different angles that had taken place in different companies. I think, you know, the having Crowbar and Daphne as co-champs, it certainly alludes to when Chris Jericho and China were co-champs in the WWF, but also just the structure of the match itself, where you had Crowbar and Daphne against uh, Candido and Sitch, it felt like an off-Broadway version of the matches that Candido and Sonny had in ECW against Dawn Marie and Lance Storm, which were infinitely uh, more entertaining. So it, it just felt like we're going to take some inspiration from here and take some inspiration from there. And the, the sum will be lesser than the inspiration. And, and I, I, I didn't like this match. I, again, it's, it's sad looking back at these things because 
I think Chris Candido had potential. Like he might not have been a top guy in this company or he might not have had the potential to be a top guy in this company, but he definitely could have been a solid mid Carter. And I don't think he ever, like the first night we saw him on Nitro might have been his best night because it's been all downhill since then. Yeah, I mean, like for for me, this was, aside from just being confused watching it, it, it was just the, the Miss Hancock entrance really kind of mm. bummed me out because it was like, okay, we're actually seeing some some women wrestlers in the ring, and then it kind of gets undercut with just this, like, r- after the, the, the last presence of we've seen a woman in the ring is this, you know, is the Major Guns resuscitating, uh, you know, Terry Funk via, via Boner, and then, like, now we've got, like, this... Now we've got like, a, oh, okay, we've actually got some women wrestling in this mixed tag team match, but then we bring out Miss Hancock to just sort of do this seductive dance and I guess make uh, make them too horny to fight. I don't know. I feel like so much of this was like Russo just projecting his own like, like okay, this is how guys think. Like they're so – guys are so horny all the time that if a sexy woman is around, they just can't function anymore because that's what my worldview is because it was, it was just so – like I, the Miss Hancock thing was just like it wasn't justified and it was confusing, and then it just also just took you out of like what otherwise could have been an okay match. I just realized that accidental boners factored into two finishes on this show. This wasn't the only one. There's another one later. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, like I said, this uh, segment was not over because a very unhappy Ric Flair then makes his way out and he beats up Crowbar, the guy who just became cruiserweight champion. He throws him out the ring, and he gets on the mic, and he calls out Russo. We then show the production truck where Russo is shown telling the crew to play a tape. In the ring, Flair continues to call out Russo while warning him not to play the tape that he has. We then go outside where Sting, duffel bag in hand, walks out of the arena. I guess his shift is over for the night. Sting walks to his car, which is on fire. It should be noted this company lost $63 million this year. (laughs) Back in the ring, Flair looks... Totally confused as to why that footage of Sting was just shown. I'm guessing the crew legitimately fucked up and played the wrong footage because they then go to a second pre-tape, this one from the Flair household. David Flair, Daphne, and Vince Russo are shown arriving to Ric Flair's home for an exclusive expose. Here it is, the Flair estate, everybody. Look at it. And here behind those doors, come on, camera, the all-American family lives inside. Of course, not you, though, David, because you are an outcast. David complains that he was always the outcast and that his father never let him ride in the family's limo. Russo and David then enter Flair's bedroom, and Russo jumps on Space Mountain. David complains that he was never allowed to go in the family pool, instead being forced to swim in a creek in the backyard. This is their swimming pool. You see their swimming pool? You see it? This is my swimming pool. That little creek, that polluted, filthy, shark-infested creek, that's the only place you're allowed to go, right, David? The only place I've been allowed for years. Russo puts on one of Flair's robes and goes into Reed's room full of trophies. Meanwhile, David is forced to live in the basement in an unfinished room. Russo gives David a hug and tells him that he loves him. This is when the rest of the Flair family comes home. Beth, Reed, and four-time WWE Women's Champion Charlotte Flair making her television (laughs) debut... Beth then threatens to call the police, and the intruders leave. We're out of here. Let's go. Let's go. We'll go. Throw them out in the street like you did for 21 years. That's and a you ma- keep your hands to yourself, young lady. This might have legitimately been the greatest thing that Vince Russo and David Flair were ever <laughs> associated with in their entire career. They were both great here. 
I really like this man. Like and and going back to the segment last week with Flair and Russo, I, I enjoyed that. And I'm wondering, particularly uh, when you talk about Vince Russo the character, as opposed to Vince Russo the writer and 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 the producer of this program and the booker. I like Vince Russo the character, and I wonder how different things would have been if he was only brought back as an on-screen character because I do think there's some value in Vince Russo as a character in this show but when he is a character as well as the guy creating the show then I think you run into all sorts of problems that cannot be erased even though I did enjoy this particular segment yeah it's it's like you know I I agree this pre-tape I I I was you know was was his most enjoyable presence in the show but he's just in the show so much and i think there's probably a temptation when you're kind of the writer showrunner star to just put yourself in it as much as possible and just just sort of think you can carry things because yeah this is a I mean, this was pretty entertaining. I I guess just like lore wise, I was I was trying to to figure out if David was an unreliable narrator or not. Like, is he telling the truth about his childhood was he like this neglected was is the idea in this story that he's this neglected kid or has he kind of been brainwashed by russo and he's misremembering this upbringing he had with his his legendary father rick flair yeah they never quite let us know if david is exaggerating because it would make sense for russo to be exaggerating but they'd never really so it's funny a lot of things that david's saying are funny and you can buy into the idea that he is the child, he's the only child from a previous marriage, and so he feels a little bit left behind, and he feels a little out of step with the other kids, and that they've sort of been favored. That all makes sense, but yeah, when he starts to say things like, they forced me to live in the basement, and I have to, I'm not allowed to enter the pool, (laughs) and and I'm not allowed to go in the limo because my stepmom uses it to buy groceries, that's when you start to go over the top, and you're like, okay, is this guy making it up? Because you could see Russo making it up, but yeah, it isn't necessarily true to the character of David Flair for him to be making these comedic exaggerations. Right. And honestly, I kind of I kind of buy a lot of what David says, you know, because going again back to last week when we had that big segment with Ric Flair, you know, ostensibly the segment was crafted so Flair could come out and confront his son that turned on him at the pay-per-view. But I'd say a good 75 to 80 percent of that speech or that promo that Ric Flair put down was about his history in St. Louis and his lineage and all the greats he's fought and all the greats he's met in the ring. And then, you know, you get this kind of footnote of and I'm also here for my son, David. So I think if in the hands of a better writer, you could have that 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 kind of walk in the tightrope where. David Flair has some legitimate gripes and concerns, and Russo was just playing with it and twisting the screws and amplifying it. But uh, because Vince Russo is the 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 genius, the the maestro behind this concert, uh, we 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 get a lot of flat notes. Right. If if Rick is you know because Rick is the the face here, if he was if we're trying to have that angle, then you kind of want to be like, oh well, maybe he maybe David was upset about his upbringing, but Rick has some justification, you know, like I, you know, whatever I made you live in the basement. Cause it made you stronger. And it made you, you know, like think about, you know, like, like just whatever he did the Bane justification. Uh, like he, he had some sort of reason for why he was doing all these things that were otherwise, you know, like hurtful towards his kid. But I, I mean, like we don't really ever get that. And so I don't know if he's, if he's just full of shit or what. Uh, see now, I, I, oh now, I just want I want a Batman reboot with Ric Flair as Bane. <laughs> just, 
Batman to be the man, you've got to beat the man. Instead of yeah, it, it, he's instead of bald, he's just got that platinum blonde like mullet. Oh, great, <laughs> book it. So back in the ring, Flair just looks devastated. David and newly crowned cruiserweight champion Daphne then come out. David says his dad, Vince Russo, is busy in the back, so he'll have to talk to him. Rick calls David down to the ring because tonight he's going to grow up and become a man. Rick runs down David for the way that he treated his uncle Arn on Thunder. David says that Rick doesn't know what it's like to be mistreated for 20 years. Rick says that he's cashing in his Great American Bash title shot early and that he will be facing Jeff Jarrett for the world title tonight. Why is he doing this? So that he can face David at the Great American Bash. Rick tells David that he'll be wrestling Ric Flair, not his dad. Rick goes a step further and tells David that he'll retire if David beats him. Jeff Jarrett then sneaks into the ring and gives Flair a guitar shot from behind. David then pounds on Rick while Jarrett applies the figure four. I'll see you at the Great American Bash! Dad! The awards, the, the honors, the titles, that man, Rick Flair, we may be in the final weeks of his career! Again, I think this sort of plays to what uh, you were saying, Nick, in terms of the justification here. I almost feel that if we were... If these, if maybe if this was like a Sins of the Father kind of thing, where... Maybe Ric Flair shows a little bit of remorse. Maybe if he acknowledges right. that maybe I haven't always been the best dad. Yes. But because yes. he's not going there, the audience, we're just sort of left in this confused middle ground of like, well, is, is he exaggerating? And, you know, Rick's been father of the year or is Rick delusional and not willing to admit, you know, this thing? And in that case, then David is justified for the way he's acting. Yeah, it felt like the, you know... I, I think projecting onto the audience, it felt like the crowd was kind of muted throughout a lot of this. And I think it was partly because they weren't sure they were trying to make sense of this situation. And they shouldn't have been because it just it didn't make any sense. Yeah, and to me, again, it it it, it I, I left this segment kind of feeling sorry for David Flair, both right. in the father son aspect. But also, you know, he's Rick Flair's punching down. And I think if you're the stature of somebody like Nature Boy Ric Flair, you shouldn't be punching down. And I think there's a way you could tell this story and have Rick show some compassion. Have Rick, you know, say, you know, maybe I maybe I haven't done everything the right way, but I'm still your father. I still love you. All listen. And and you know, if if having a match is what you need to prove yourself right. to yourself, then then we'll do it. But it felt like Rick is Rick is way too eager to, to accept this match. Yeah, and and also too, like if you're gonna go as as big as saying that, like, oh, Vince Russo is my dad now, like if that's the choice that you're going to make, the day, like, then it feels like you could maybe play on that, you know, play on a brainwashing angle or something, or play on mm. a, something has happened to him that may, like, like David, this is like this is not what happened, you know, maybe he's not telling the truth, or or yeah, or or Rick is remorseful, like you were saying, like like it just it feels like it needs something. Our next segment sees the House of Pain cage being lowered down once more, and the crew is fixing the hole in the roof. Vince Russo comes out with Liz, Chuck Palumbo, and R&B security. Russo gets in the cage and says that he always has a plan. Russo tells Liz that she will compete tonight in the House of Pain against Medusa. Security surrounds the ring, and Chuck Palumbo locks the door with Russo, Medusa, and Liz inside. Russo continues to trash talk Liz as Medusa stalks her. Just then... One of the crew guys working on the cage drops into the ring, revealing himself to be Lex Luger with a hilarious fake mustache on. This was this was Gene Parmesan in Arrested Development levels. <laughs> I loved it. I mean that that was a that was a highlight for me. A total package taken off that 
that cheesy, you know, 50 cent Groucho <laughs> mustache. Great. So Russo throws Medusa at Luger, who then puts her in a torture rack to continue tonight's stellar treatment of female talent. Russo then low blows Lex, but Lex pulls out a cup. So many tricks up the Master of Disguise's sleeve here. Liz then low blows Russo and rubs Luger's cup in Russo's face. Security then opens the door and takes down Luger, but then the Wolfpack music plays, prompting Kevin Nash to shuffle down the aisle. R&B security pushed in front. Look at Russo run. Look at him run. They're flying around like confetti. Kevin Nash is taking apart the entire R&B security force. Nash teases a powerbomb onto Medusa, but Mike Awesome jumps him from behind. Lex Luger picks up a pair of bolt cutters and chases off Mike Awesome. Nash then gets on the mic and challenges Mike Awesome to an ambulance match tonight. Awesome accepts. So much shit happened in this segment. (laughs) One of the issues why we're seeing Vince Russo so much on this show, and he said in interviews, is that he just felt like so many of the WCW talent couldn't cut decent promos, so he kept inserting himself into angles. So the feud here is really Lex Luger versus Chuck Palumbo, but because he doesn't trust chuck palumbo to cut a promo chuck's just standing by a steel cage door while all this other shit goes on and doing nothing yeah he was just literally standing guard this show and then the more you talk about it with vince russo's involvement it felt to me like this is a show that really could have used managers sure because there was no need for vince to be all over this show like i I, sunny ono still available sunny was suing them at the time yeah, Sonny, look, Ernest the, Ernest the Cat Miller should be a manager for yes, somebody. Right. Uh, Medusa, she's not a great talker, but she's a better talker than Chuck Palumbo. Have Medusa talk for Chuck Palumbo in this right. segment. And it was, it was also, too, it was looking back on it, because the, the Kevin Nash run-in and the Mike Awesome coming in, the, so that was just, like, to set up that ambulance match later. And it, it made me, like, it was just, like, that was so, it, it felt like that was a... It was like the end of, uh, of of Return of the King, where it was just like we had this ending where the R&B security force they like they 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 stepped in for Russo and it was kind of like oh the bad guy won it's just like oh man that's 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 the end of it but then Big Sexy comes in and clears the ring and then Mike Awesome comes in and beats up Big Sexy it was just like wait those what are the, what were those doing there like I feel like you could have just edited those out and found some other way to justify this ambulance match because it just made this big bloated confusing segment. Backstage, Mean Gene is standing with Scott Steiner and his freaks. As far as Russo's foreman, who he's got me wrestling tonight, if he was close enough, I'd shove it up his ass. Matter of fact, you tell Russo. No, I tell Russo. Russo, I'm not wrestling tonight. I'm in my street clothes. I'm in the back of the building in the alley waiting for my brother and Tank because there's too many freaking rules in wrestling. Nick, uh, when we were emailing beforehand, your one request was that you hoped there would be some Scott Steiner, and I've got to apologize that this was all the Scott Steiner you got. This was this is the most Steiner light episode we've had in months. Not your fault. Not your fault. I mean, not anyone's fault. I mean, I, I would like to see some more Big Papa Pump. Also, just like a weird. Basically, a non-usage of Mean Gene here was it? Was it just like did they have some? Did he have some feud with Russo or something? But they were contractually obligated to put him on camera, and so he only got like the, this three minutes of airtime. It was just like he was he was in there in and out super quick. Nick, I'm I, I'm not even kidding with you. There's something weird this week because the last four shows have had Scott Steiner vividly describing orgies he was in the night before, and Mean Gene interviewing <laughs> at least five people. I don't know what wow. it was about this week that yeah, Mean Gene is just there, not even dressed up. He's like in a un, like an untucked shirt, and this was all we got from Scott. Yeah, he had 
Mean Gene like had his kid's soccer game to get to, so he had to get in and out real quickly. Uh, the yeah, Scott Snyder, the, the, and and I guess he was uh, was he injured? Was that was that the thing? Like he couldn't wrestle? I I I, I assume that was what was happening. Nope. Nope, he's wrestling. He's wrestling, and he's U.S. champion at this time. He just never defends the belt. So the thing was, and not to skip ahead the, the segment too much, but I had forgotten that Tank Abbott was a presence of the promotion for a time. <laughs> and that was a guy where, like, looking back and, like, looking at how some of, you know, some some MMA fighters and, and you know, certainly a lot of amateur wrestlers have made the transition to uh, to wrestling, it's to pro wrestling, it really seems like... Tank Abbott should have worked. Like I'm just like, oh, he he has like a distinct look. He has kind of like this persona and the stare down. But why why did he never really take off, or why did he not really go anywhere? Was it just he just didn't have the grappling skills? I mean, for one, I think the look is shit. Is is part of the oh, problem. Okay. I mean, he's like he's missing his front teeth. He's got right. that huge belly. He's awful on promos. <laughs> and I mean, as we've been able to see these last couple months. Uh, it's just start and stop with the way they, they push this guy. There was one episode earlier in the year where they booked him really strong for the episode to face Sid Vicious, and then he taps out to the guy in five minutes. So it's been a start and stop. They were getting behind him just recently. He was, like, murdering innocent people around the ring, and then he lost to David Arquette. So part of it's just start and stop with the way that they've uh, been booking him. But, uh, I, Nate, if, if I'm not mistaken, I feel like Tank Abbott is the most divisive presence on the show in terms of how guests fall. Uh, Tank Abbott and maybe uh, going forward, Buff Bagwell. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> still, one of the best segments of this entire run of Nitros in 2000 to me, Brian Mann, was the sit-down interview they did with Tank and Mike Tanay. Like I thought that was a great way to present this guy, but what did it lead to? A match with a jacket on a pole against some dude we've never heard of, Big Al. And then, you know, you get to Tank Abbott, you know, holding up the show. And then he leaves the next segment later after saying, I'm not going to leave until I get what I want. He didn't get what he wants. He just leaves anyway. Uh, then he loses to Arquette. And it's it's a combination of things. Like, he's not a great promo. His one effective move, you know, that that, that right-hand punch has never looked good to me that in the time that we've seen him on the show. So I, I think there's a packaging issue. There's a presentation issue, but there's also uh, maybe more importantly, a booking issue. Like I think there was a way that you could have made tank Abbott a believable badass on this program, but at every turn when they could have made the right decision, it seems like for the most part, they made the wrong decision with him. Ralphus and Norman Smiley are then shown selling boxes of popcorn for a dollar each, which might have actually been the only money WCW made on this show. <laughs> we go backstage, and it's now time for our impromptu street fight. Uh, now, this really wasn't so much of an alley they were meeting in as it was just, like, two electrical boxes behind the building. Rick and Tank approach Scott, but Scott's freaks hit Rick with a two-by-four from behind. Rick chases the women behind the electrical box, and they're never seen again, so who knows what the hell... Rick did to them back there. Rick and Tank then double-team Scott until the Goldberg monster truck arrives one more time and drives over six conveniently placed cars, causing Rick and Tank to run away in fear. Again, this company lost $63 million this year. <laughs> it, it's interesting because once you brought it up, Nick, I, I can't stop seeing it now. Again, this was a segment where this should have been this street fight that we're paying attention to, but then it's instantly overshadowed by presumably Bill Goldberg showing up to to destroy some people. We don't even know whose cars these are. These are just, these could have been some innocent right. fans. That could have been the popcorn <laughs> vendor's car for all we know. 
Yeah, some 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 dad of five, like you know, took his kids. You spend his hard-earned money to take them to go see WCW Monday Nitro. He gets out and his Subaru Outback is just flattened by Goldberg's <laughs> car. Like what the hell? Uh, the yeah the the idea here is so like Scott Steiner, Rick Steiner take out because the match was so abbreviated is what what made me think that he was that there was an injury or something they were covering for because they bring out that monster truck really fast. And the Goldberg's monster truck was, I mean, it was like that, that, that itchy and scratchy and poochy episode of the Simpsons where they're just like, they never get to the fireworks factory. I just was like, like, when are we going to see, get to see Goldberg? And they keep teasing the monster truck and we see the monster truck throughout and then Goldberg never comes. It like never pays off. It's so ultimately unsatisfying looking back at it. Goldberg's monster truck, Brian, man, for the second week in a row. More questions than answers because <laughs> this is like uh, the bad version of when we first started this show. And we had that early run of episodes where Sting wasn't on the show, but every week they do something to tie him into the feud with Luger so the fans would still remember it. But at least then we were moving towards something. With this, it feels like like every week, we, we well, the last two weeks, we've had this monster truck and... Last week we got the the proclamation by Shivani or Hudson. I, I I bet we know who's in that monster truck because his name's on the his name's painted on the side of the thing. Like why not just take the time we're taking with these Goldberg monster truck things and air like the uh, Goldberg returning soon video packages or something in his place. Well, a monster truck is also quite the quite the omen to sort of uh, telegraph your impending appearance. It isn't like Sting with like a crow that shows up that's like vaguely supernatural. Are we presuming that Bill Goldberg is driving cross-country in this monster truck every single week? Does he own this? He owns this vehicle? I, I, I mean, we're assuming he's driving it, and he's, he's either paying, it, paying to transport it or physically taking it on the highway. And at this point, Bill Goldberg must just think he's above the law. If he can drive a monster truck with his name on it on live TV and just be flattening cars in a parking lot with impunity, I mean, he must just not think he's ever going to face any consequences. I, 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 it, it all just clicked in, Brian, right, uh, right when you guys were discussing it. The way they could have made this, this entire monster truck angle wrap up with a satisfying conclusion is if... Two weeks ago, we had done, let's, let's uh, push the Norman and Ralphus firing angle two weeks back. And Norman's like, don't worry, Ralphus, I've got a plan. That's a bad Norman Smiley impression. To go with <laughs> so then we get weeks and weeks of this Goldberg thing. And then it turns out it's not Goldberg in the truck, but it's Ralphus, who was actually a truck driver, and Norman sitting in the cab of the truck this whole time. <laughs> Goldberg's been paying him. There you go. So back in the arena, Nash reverses an ambulance into the arena. He he now is actually in charge of driving this vehicle himself. <laughs> While Mark Madden apologizes for saying that Bruno Sammartino was dead two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I implied that Bruno Sammartino was dead. He's not. I apologize. Nash and Awesome start off with some generic brawling. Nash hits some elbows. Awesome's got some punches and a flying clothesline. Awesome swings a chair, but Nash kicks him in the gut. These two then brawl towards the ambulance. Nash then punches Awesome in the dick no less than four times. He just hit him in the groin like it was a speed bag, for heaven's sakes. He just hit him four times right in the, right in the, well, you know where. In the groin, he said it right the first time. 
Don't look for another word when one will do just fine. DDP then comes in from behind and hits Awesome with a diamond cutter on the ramp. Nash then goes to powerbomb Awesome off of the stage, but he can't quite get Awesome up, so DDP has to help him. And he ends up jumping off the stage with Mike Awesome to ensure that he lands safely. DDP and Nash then give Awesome a crotch chop and leave, ignoring the rules of an ambulance match. But the ref still calls for the bell anyway and gives Nash the win. And that power, like, Nash just blew that power bomb you're supposed to do, right? That, was why, that wasn't a, a... He blew every power bomb at this time. Because, yeah, he... <laughs> yeah that, was, that was one of the, I mean... That was just like really sloppy and unsatisfying for what should have been, you know, this this great moment of him going through that table by the ambulance, and then just him and DDP giving him the assist for this sort of. Sl- I mean, what even was the move? They just sort of jumped off with him and dropped him onto a table. Um, yeah, it, it was. I mean, I was happy to see DDP. That was that was fun to see him show up. But yeah, this this mat- Yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about it until now that the ambulance match was just completely. They they didn't abide by those rules hmm. at all. Well, uh, Nick, one of the things I always like to, you know, see where our guests are at in terms of this time period is uh, when it comes to Mike Awesome. And you mentioned earlier, you know, you'd watched some WCW when you're in college out there in California. How how much, if any, ECW were were you uh, able to see? And if so, uh, did you have any thoughts on one Mike Awesome? Because I have been saying it for weeks. Like, I think he's... Another guy that's sorely underutilized in 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 this current yeah, incarnation I mean, in WCW. I never watched ECW, uh, so you know when an ECW guy would like come over, that would be I I know certainly the hype behind them, but I wouldn't like I wouldn't have any personal experience having watched them. But yeah, I like Mike Awesome, and yeah, I felt like he could have. I, I mean, in a in a different era, uh, he you know and and he could have maybe been used more more effectively um because he certainly you know got some skills and and got some charisma and he's got a great name i mean mike awesome that's great outside the arena f-u-n-b hulk hogan shows up in his midlife crisis muscle car 90 minutes late to the show hang on we know who this is hulk hogan is here back at the popcorn booth norman and ralphus celebrate their 30 minutes of hard work having sold all of their popcorn Ralphus has a piece of popcorn stuck in his teeth, and we get a disgusting close-up of his mouth. This was hardly the grossest part of the segment, though, as Ralphus then dug his hand into his ass before reaching into the popcorn machine. The owner of the popcorn stand then returns and fires the two of them on the spot. Get out of there! Did you see what he just did? No, what happened? Did did you order extra butter? I know I did. No, I didn't. He had his head in his ass, and he put his hand in the popcorn. This whole part's contaminated now. But he's new at this. I'm out of business. You guys are out of here. Forget about it. Get out. Get away from my popcorn. You're fired. You're gone today. Well, you're fired now. Forget about it. You're out of here. Man, what a journey! I mean, it, like you know, the the guy who played Ralphus, just such a degrading role fundamentally. Just like you're, <laughs> hey, you're you're this toothless uh, fatso, and we're gonna have you, we're gonna show your ass crack as much as possible. Are you in? And he's like, uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, it just just like to be relegated to that on camera. It's just. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's so. It's just so so thoroughly degrading. What's what's the more demeaning WCW side character, Brian? Man, if if you were a performer, which role would you rather have, Ralphus or Al Green as the dog? <laughs> well, Al Green's lasted longer, uh, right? For one, but Al Green also had to drink out of a toilet. Yeah. So I think I would choose Ralphus. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the arena, Eric Bischoff, Kimberly, and the cat make their way out. 
Bischoff, in his mom jeans, challenges DDP to a fight here and now. Page comes out and says he doesn't need any backup because Ernest Miller is a pussy. Wait for it. Cat. Got a huge applause from the audience. You're a pussy, cat. DDP enters the ring and beats the crap out of the cat and Bischoff. Cat eats a diamond cutter, then Bischoff and DDP brawl around the ring. Kimberly lands a weak chair shot on DDP, and the cat nails him with a spin kick. This then leads to the surprise return of Sid Vicious. Sid gets a huge pop, comes down, and just stands on the apron waiting for a tag. Despite this not being a tag match and there being no rules or referee present, (laughs) DDP, though, plays along and decides to tag in Sid for no reason. Surprise, surprise, Sid pivots his hips, and he chokeslams DDP instead. He is with Bischoff, despite having been stripped of the world title by Bischoff a month ago. This unexpected heel turn then causes Hulk Hogan to instantly appear and chase off the heels. Bischoff tells Hogan to stay in the ring because he is a dead man. I don't, this, was, this was like four different segments, and I felt very differently about each of them. <laughs> what a way to drop the ball on a guy who actually got a pop when he came out. Yeah, it feels like, you know, you totally, even if you wanted to have that heel turn, wait like a month, wait a pay-per-view, you know, and, and, and do it then. But because clearly he was he was very over with the audience and he, he could have just, you know, he could have gone in there and he could have saved DDP's ass and they would have loved him. And then you could have rolled with that for a little bit. Um, it, it was, yeah, just su- such an abrupt and unjustified heel turn. Also just, I, I'm, I, you know, I think part of the, I think part of the issue with Russo for me is that he's coexisting with Bischoff and they're pretty redundant. Like they're both kind of like these kind of corrupt cartoonish commissioner overseer types. And I know they have, they have slightly different, they certainly have different roles behind the scenes and they have slightly different roles on camera, but they're kind of redundant. And then even like the Kimberly page arc with Bischoff is kind of redundant with the David flair arc with Russo in a, in a slightly different way. It's kind of like, I'm taking your, I'm taking this, this, you know, uh, this beloved wrestler's you know loved one and and recruiting them to my side it was they're they're kind of doing the same thing so yeah a lot of Russo a lot of Bischoff and and not a lot of not a lot of not a lot of stuff from from our our, our better in ring performers and and when I was watching this segment Brian I was just thinking what could have been because you know Sid Vicious he's got his limitations in the ring, but you and I have seen through, through this run, man, Sid Vicious can, he can do some good things when he's in there with the right person. And I was like, man, how great would a Sid Vicious, Mike awesome feud be right. in WCW in the year 2000 instead of Sid, uh, Sid Vicious and now teaming up with Bischoff. And then on the other side, Kevin Nash and Mike awesome. Like I would love if they just switched dance partners. Uh, but the other thing is, I think Bischoff is another person who is really good as an on-screen character, but he does feel redundant, like Nick was saying, when you have Russo filling a lot of the same shoes, playing a lot of the similar notes that Bischoff's character is playing. The one thing I do like about the Bischoff side of things, as opposed to the Russo side of things, is with Russo, we've got the David Flair stuff, which just confuses me, whereas with Bischoff, we've got, if not clear motivation from Kimberly, we've got a clear purpose right? in terms of her wanting to be the star. And it's all about me. So I think at least that side of the, you know, taking a loved one away from somebody, that story is a lot bit, 
a lot more clearer and a bit more concise for me than the David Flair uh, Russo stuff. Yeah, and, and you mentioned with with Sid, like maybe Sid could have turned a month down the line. I think if Sid, if there had honestly just been 30 minutes buffer, like if we'd had Sid return and then built to a match sure. that he then returned <laughs> in later, and, and as good as I think a Mike Awesome Sid program would have been, I think a Mike Awesome Sid tag team would have been really great. Like if you had had those Ooh. two together and they were like the really big muscle for the new blood. The new skyscrapers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. And, you know, to put our fantasy booking hat on for a second here, maybe you do a thing where we announce that Sid and Buff or Shane and Buff have been stripped of the tag titles. Chronic is still owed some match. So they're going to get a shot at the vacant tag titles and they're going to face a mystery team from the new blood. And Mike Awesome comes out, and then he reveals his partner, and it's it's Sid Vicious. And then you have Chronic versus Mike Awesome and Sid Vicious, and you've actually built to it. We're not necessarily getting Sid turning heel because he's just returning as a heel, and that's kind of a surprise. But that maybe could have been one way to do it. But uh, you know, Brian, I, I really like your your pitch of of you know having that be a tag team versus Chronic. The only thing I'd say against that is then we would have lost the wonderful element of the wall uh, beating the shit out of a bunch of paramedics for no reason. Oh, no, we still could have just done that. Like, right. We, you we should just, just cut backstage to, <laughs> to wall beating up paramedics. Yeah, he's just pummeling first responders. Just, uh, <laughs> just They're just hanging out. Backstage, Bischoff is with Kidman and Horace Hogan, who was forced to join the New Blood on Thursday, meaning this is now our third storyline where a family member is forced <laughs> to turn on their family member. <laughs> Bischoff says that Horace will be facing his uncle Hulk tonight, which doesn't please him. With the announcement of Horace versus the Hulkster, it is now time for the Hogan Bump Challenge. Every week here when Hulk Hogan has a match, we take wagers on how many bumps we think the Hulkster will take. Uh, even though he's a professional wrestler, he does not like doing it. You're the guest. Well, let's go first. How many bumps do you think Hulk took in this match? Huh. Boy. Uh, I'm not even sure to where to go on the range here. It didn't. I don't remember a lot. I'm going to say I'm going to say six. Ooh. Whoa, whoa. I, <laughs> did I did I just go high? He has never gone above four. Oh wow! Okay, I really bet the over on that one. Okay, uh, yeah, no, I was I was thinking four, but I was like, that's too low. I'm gonna say six. I'll, I'll still I'll stick with four. Oh, see, Hulk Hogan is very much uh, the Vin Diesel of the show, and and Vince Russo's booking is fast and furious. Uh, and, and 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 you know, with Vin Diesel's character Dom, it's it's not about friends; it's all about family. And and since Horace is family, I'm I'm thinking uh, Hulk might be a little generous tonight. Uh, so I'm not gonna go as high as four. I'm not I'm not gonna go crazy here. Uh, but I think we will see a Hulk take some bumps for for his uh, blood. I'm gonna say the Hulkster takes. Give me three bumps. Okay, you're going to say three bumps. Uh, I've decided to sit this one out, Nate. I think moving forward, I'm going to sit the Hogan bump challenges out because I do know the answer, and it's it's an unfair advantage. So I won't say, but I all I will say is that both you guys, you went over by quite a bit. Wow. <laughs> With three. <laughs> <laughs> Bischoff's on commentary, and the bell rings, and we're told that this is actually a three-way match with Kidman, so I wish they'd kind of let us know that earlier. Uh Essentially, the story of the match is that Horace is standing in the ring doing nothing while Hulk beats up on Kidman. On the ramp, Hulkster whips Kidman as the audience chants, kick his ass. Kidman begs Horace for some help, but the younger Hogan does nothing. Kidman and Hulk then brawl around the ring, and Billy then lands a low blow. 
They get back in the ring, but the Hulkster just hulks up right again. Kidman lands another nut shot and tries to leave the ring, but Horace grabs Kidman and throws him back in the ring. Bischoff gets on the apron and is then punched by Horace. This brings out the filthy animals, who all run into Hulk Hogan's fist. Both Hogans then get chairs and clear the ring of the filthy animals. It seems that Horace is strongly a babyface. This, however, leads to Tori Wilson making her entrance, which causes Horace to lose all control over his bodily functions. <laughs> the horny Horace then whacks his uncle with a chair from behind and gets the pin. Now, it should be noted that Hulkster rolled forward after this <laughs> chair shot, meaning that he did not take wow. a single fucking bump in this match. That's an accomplishment in and of itself. you got to give the, the Hulkster props for taking the big fat goose egg in terms of bumps. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it stayed binary. It stayed zero. Uh, Nate, though, I think you win because you, you, you went lower here, buddy. Oh, I, I will take this... Uh... Uh, the, this technical victory, a, a Pyrrhic <laughs> victory, if you will, it, it's you know it's it's a Pyrrhic victory because yes, I did win, but I also had to watch this match in order to win. So, uh, <laughs> but I'll take it, man. A win's a win. What was so was when Horace was just standing there? Was the idea he was conflicted, or was he just like he was just waiting it out? I, I couldn't. He was literally just standing in the ring most of the time. I guess we were just playing with the idea that he was not going to fight his... Because the thing was, he had been forced into New Blood on the most recent Thunder. Sure. So it was that he was he, he was reluctantly doing it. He wasn't going to do their bidding. He punches Bischoff, but then, you know, titties show up, and all of a sudden he has to attack his uh, his uncle who raised yeah, him Yeah, once again, just someone <laughs> having their, in total, their total perspective immediately changed by a woman standing nearby. Oh, there's a woman wearing a dress. Now I'm I'm so horny, I'm going to betray my uncle. <laughs> it, it's, it was so weird. <laughs> Even the lead up to that was just confusing where he was just, because I didn't re- quite see the see Horace being super conflicted in terms of what he was doing. Like they didn't want to commit to him being like, like reluct him reluctantly fighting Hulk. So they just had him like not doing anything. And it was just a very strange stage picture. Yeah. It's like Tori Wilson came out. I think he, I might be wrong, but I think he literally licked his lips (laughs) before hitting his uncle with a chair. He He put a bow tie on and it started spinning. And then uh, his tongue just sort of like uh, unfurled out of his mouth and rolled down his chest. And then his eyes like bulged out, bulged out of his head and you heard an awooga sound. Steam came out of his ears. <laughs> like all, all of this aside, like all of this is good conversation. If, you know, we were talking about somebody that was interesting. But when has Horace Hogan? ever been shown as somebody that the fans were interested in or invested in like i could see if this were maybe maybe luger maybe somebody maybe somebody that hogan had an affinity with but even like uh, other than maybe uh maybe uh the flock like was was that the last time was was that was horse in the flock horse was in the flock but this was the first time i think horse has ever been pushed as a singles yeah that's how that's how (laughs) That's a little horse's man. Like he wasn't even in the NWO, was he? He was. He was in the. I think he might have been in the like the the Virgil level NWO with Stevie Stevie Ray was leading the B team. Yeah, he was in the. Yeah, he was in the C list. But uh, yeah, like Horace Hogan, like he's not a sympathetic character. Like I I didn't feel anything for him being forced into this group because I never really cared about the Horace Hogan character to begin with. Like not just now looking back, but even in 2000, this wasn't something that gripped me. Like, oh man, what is Horace Hogan going to do this week, guys? He doesn't really have like enough of a – of a strong persona where where you feel that sort of connection to him. Well, I think it speaks to Russo's desire to have 
he knows the big moment he wants to build to, but he doesn't know how to pave that path. And we're seeing it in all of these storylines. We're certainly seeing it in the David Flair storyline where the 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 dots just aren't being connected properly. And we haven't ever seen Hulk and Horus have any sort of affinity on screen. <laughs> Even when they're in the NWO together, they never had any actual bonds. So if there had been something where we had maybe seen them bonding at some point, I mean, fucking... We've never even seen them arrive at the arena together. I guess Hulk <laughs> doesn't allow Horace to ride in his sweet muscle car. There's been no there's been no bond that's been established between these two other than us being told that they have the same last name. I mean, he doesn't have the look of, of the Hulkster. He doesn't have the charisma of the Hulkster. He's just a guy that you look at and you instantly feel, oh, yeah, you're in the biz because you're related to someone famous. Right. So we then go backstage where Horace and Tori are leaving the building arm in arm while Kidman chases them. <laughs> Billy is pissed, but Eric tells him it's no big deal as Horace and Tori ride off in a limo together. Chill, 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 chill. We'll talk about this. What, we can, what do you mean? What are you doing? No He's climbing no in the car with Horace. What is going on here? And Eric says it's no big deal. I couldn't believe it, guys. WCW was doing a cuck storyline <laughs> in the year 2000. Really ahead of the curve. I mean... The, the idea was that uh, the the thing I inferred is that Bischoff had some somehow engineered this, right? I guess, like, or was was Tori just the, of her own free will? She decided to go out and and be a temptress while this match was going on. I think they were pulling a fast one on Billy. Where, okay. yeah, like Bischoff had like had made this proposition behind Kidman's back, which kind of makes Kidman a baby face. I think that if you want to keep Kidman a heel, if he was like willingly giving this guy access to his wife, that would maybe get some heat right. from the crowd. But this, like, I, I feel bad for the guy. Did, did this plan just happen, like, from the time Horace turned to the time we got backstage? Because Horace punched Bishop. Like, when when did Eric craft this plan? <laughs> <laughs> was, was he on the ground? He's like, you know what? Horace knocked some sense into me. Tori, get up there. We, I've got a plan. I'm thinking on the fly. Right. That was the plan d that was if everything else failed if the the three-way didn't work if the filthy animals didn't work fuck it you can you can fuck the guy's wife that's the last <laughs> option that we have if every if all, all else fails we've got that one in our back pocket <laughs> so it is main event time uh vince russo and david flair come out to be on commentary for this match Rick comes out. Uh, he's fully dedicated to this new gimmick nate he is only wrestling in his street clothes we have not seen him in proper tights in two months now Tony lets us know that next week's Nitro will start an hour early because of the NBA Finals being broadcast on TNT. Nate, do you know who would have been in that game? You guys know sports a lot better than I. Who was who was the 2000 NBA Finals during? Oh boy, that was that was the uh, that was during the Lakers title run. Uh, was that the uh, let's see 2000? Was that the Pacers year? That was the. Uh... That was the Lakers, and was that the Pistons year? No, that was the, that was the Pacers year. That was the Pacers year. Yeah, because the that was the the or wait, hold on, I'm trying to do the no, no, yeah, I think that was the that was the Pacers, and then they they played the uh, and then they played the Sixers in 2001, I believe, and that was the yeah, because 2001 because that was the that was the year they went 15 and one in the playoffs, and their only loss was to the Iverson Sixers. So yeah, I think the first yep. the first finals was the Pacers in that that threepeat run. So this was like the golden age of like Kobe and was yeah, Shaq this was, there this was as well. The Kobe and Shaq heyday. This is when they were really clicking. Yeah, this this was Shaq before Shaq went to the Heat after uh, Kobe snitched on him allegedly. 
Now that was a compelling turn, yeah, Forrest right, Hogan. Right. That, <laughs> Shaq and Kobe had built up this teamwork for over three years, and and when Kobe turned on Shaq, that meant something. And unlike your pathetic turn that we saw on this week's show <laughs> you don't think they should have just like hit the court on their very first game and Shaq just choke slammed him out of nowhere that would have been a more compelling uh, <laughs> so flair ambushes jared on the ramp and the match starts with some brawling around the ring these two eventually get into the ring and and would you believe it guys they actually had a wrestling match the first one on the show jared whips flair into the turnbuckle and he does the flair flip jared locks on a figure four but flair gets the ropes jared then tries the 10 punches in the corner but flair hits a reverse atomic drop and then another low blow flair ducks a running clothesline and nails one of his own Jarrett then whips flair into the ropes but rick is able to roll up jeff for a surprise win for his 15th world title reign. So when you guys hear about those 16 legendary title reigns, this was one of them. Uh, now, before we talk about the post-match, what did we think of this main event? It was actually a good match. Um, it seemed weird that this was the most of Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett's going to be losing the title. He didn't even cut a single right. promo on Ric Flair all night. We we had tons of time for Ralphus to sell popcorn, but we had no time for the world champion. <laughs> that aside... These two had good chemistry, and uh, it was good. It was it was an actual good wrestling match. Yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of you know this was bookended with some with some pretty competent matches. Uh, you know, the 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 first one of the night with Sting and and Vampiro, and then then this one. I, I mean, they were this this was yeah this was pretty pretty fun. And I you know I like Jeff Jarrett. I think I my my I remember my friends. At the time, my my college roommate's girlfriend was like had a crush on Jeff Jarrett, and so she was like super into Jeff Jarrett, <laughs> and so uh, that was like I remember in our in in our household that was a that was a guy who was like talked about a lot. Uh, but he, I I think he you know I think he's a a good wrestler and I think he's a good heel. Um, and I de- I always liked the guitar smashing you know uh, like gimmick. I always thought that was a fun that was a fun little thing he played around with. So yeah, I, I thought th- I thought this was this was a this was a pretty good way to end the show. You know that that's not saying much given the the dearth of of the quality of this <laughs> this particular episode. But I mean it was it, it was pretty good. Again, it goes back to what Nick was talking about with that opening match with Sting and Vampiro. You know, Sting's a professional. Flair's a professional. Jarrett's a professional. So when you got guys going in there, even if they're in street clothes, that were were born into this business and, and, and have uh, performed at the highest of stages, you're going to get a decent match. And Jarrett is somebody that I've always said, you know, I, I'm... I don't think he's the best guy on any show that he's on, but he's always competent. He's always solid. He can cut a decent promo. He he can work pretty much with anybody you put him in there with. And so this was uh it was shorter than I would have liked. Uh, but I guess by 2000 WCW standards, this was uh, a marathon. This was an <laughs> Iron Man match. Uh, but yeah, I would have liked you know maybe four or five more minutes of this thing. But uh, considering what we've watched leading up to this, uh, this, this was a good way to end the show. On commentary, David Flair is pissed for some reason. I mean, you'd assume he'd be happy. He now has a world title match at Great American Bash. Jarrett lays out Charles Robinson with a guitar shot, and the heels impound on Rick. Wolfpack music hits, and Nash power walks his way down to the ring. Nash nails Jarrett with the title belt and power bombs Jarrett through the ring. Yes, absolutely through the ring. This is two weeks in a row that we've destroyed the <laughs> ring in the main event. Nash gives the belt to Flair and raises the champ's hand in victory. In the back, Bischoff tells Shane Douglas that he and Russo will be missing Thunder, so Shane Douglas is in charge of Thunder this week. Nate, I'm so glad we don't watch the Thunders. 
The show then ends with Flair holding the belt with pride in the ring. Uh, we finished this show, and it was uh, it was fairly terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, if you would have told me before we started this show that one week would come where I would be looking back fondly at the David Arquette title reign, <laughs> I would have called you a crazy man. It, it took less than a week for you to think that. <laughs> Going through this show, I could have used some David Arquette uh, on this particular program, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, David Arquette is an actor, and so, you know, he can do his best to, to, to sell some stuff, and, and I mean, that, that has its value in something that is basically a performance. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, to me, like, a lot of this was just so directionless, but overall, I mean, the main, the main issue I had with this, as someone just being dropped back into it after a 17-year hiatus... Is it, I was just so confused by everything that was happening, and not because I didn't really didn't know the players, or because this was like the first Nitro I'd ever watched. Like I'd watched a lot of Nitro, but I was just like, man, these storylines are just so like the the justification is so thin, and then what's happening from moment to moment is just so disorienting, where I kind of just have nothing to to latch onto. Uh, so yeah, I, I I agree with your. I mean, I think it's pretty charitable for to call it fairly terrible, Brian. I think it was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's tough to do, but this is the part of the show where we do our silver lining, where we have to find something unqualified, one positive that we would say unvarnished was a solid good thing on this show. And uh, I don't, it's it's tough this week, but but Nick, what what would it be for you? What was the thing that you, honest to goodness, actually enjoyed on this episode? You know. I think it was boy I can't I can't remember who said it. It was during the the chronic match. Uh it might have been the franchise who said it, but there was a there was a bit of of cheap uh heel heat that was delivered to the crowd and it was just you Biloxi pieces of shit sit down while I talk, which was just so <laughs> like directly condescending and mean to the audience and it got a it's got a huge huge reaction and I was like, "Ah, oh, that's great. That's just classic uh, classic, you know, like a uh, heel crowd work, and I, I really responded to that. Hmm. I think, and this is this is going to be funny because, yes, and, and we've talked about it. He was far too prominent on this show, but my silver lining would probably have to go to that segment with Vince Russo taking David Flair back to the Flair House. Uh, I thought that was some pretty good acting uh, involved, and it it reminded me of one of my favorite Raven segments in WCW when they went to Raven's home, and and Raven turned out to be like this happy rich guy instead of the the brooding dark Raven that we all know. Uh, so uh, I'll give Vince Russo a thumbs up at least just for this particular segment of the show. And I, I guess for me, my silver lining has got to be. Lex Luger ripping that fake mustache off. I <laughs> yeah, yes. I don't think I've enjoyed a single moment from Nitro that much <laughs> ever since the glory days of Big T. It's been a while since I've felt this happy <laughs> during a single moment. What's the maintenance man doing? The tech. Oh, that's not a maintenance. Oh yeah. It's the total package in the Nick, thank you so much for stopping by. We appreciate uh, literally everything you went oh, through man. to to be a part of this episode. But before you go, I wanted to chat just a little bit about your show, right. Doughboys. Uh, it's you and Mike Mitchell. You guys are reviewing fast food restaurants. That's pretty much what you're doing. Is that would that be the the sort of logline of how you would pitch it? Because that's kind of the basis. But I feel like there's a lot more going on than just that. 
Right. I mean, you know, we, we go to a different chain restaurant each week, uh, and it, it's kind of, you know, the suffering that you guys go through psychologically watching uh, WCW Monday Nitro from 2000. We go through physically by subjecting our bodies to just the worst uh, of the worst food uh, week after week and reviewing it. And it's definitely taken a toll on us mentally over time. We've been doing this podcast about a year and a half, going on two years now. Uh, but yeah, we review, you know, we, we review fast food restaurants. Our most recent episode was KFC. Uh, as of this recording, it will probably be, there'll be some more, uh, more coming up. I'm sure in the interim, um, but we we'll review we'll review fast food restaurants like KFC, Taco Bell, Burger King. We'll also review the sit down chains, uh, places like you know your Denny's, your Chili's, um, and you know even sometimes some high end restaurants like a Houston's or a Morton's, the Steakhouse that have uh, multiple locations. Well, we, we kind of run the gamut in, in terms of of visiting and and profiling each of those. Um, so yeah, it's 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 been it's been a journey, and I think we'll like like you guys kind of have an end date in mind with this podcast. I mean you have an you have a prescribed you have a prescribed end date because of the the range of of nitros that you're covering. I think we're going to have to have an end date because if we just do this forever we're literally going to kill ourselves uh with this food that we're putting in our bodies. But what a way to end the show. Oh, yeah. What a way, <laughs> right? And now I'm just curious Having gone through both, which do you think is more actually harmful to the hosts? Uh, what you guys are doing over there, what we're doing uh, over here? Well, I mean, I, I, clearly you guys are are, are super knowledgeable uh, wrestling fanatics. So I, I would think that there's definitely something real, but like particularly upsetting about having to subject yourself to the worst of something that you truly love. You know what I mean? Like I just just like the fact that you guys love wrestling so much and then you're you're having just to immerse yourself in the worst possible execution of it at least available uh, on a mainstream uh, on a mainstream level. I, I don't know. I mean, there's something particularly punishing about what you guys are choosing to do to yourself. <laughs> I mean, why did you guys decide to do this? Uh so well we we had done uh, a show that was dedicated to the election and reviewing the election as though it was pro wrestling because that's essentially what the world right. became in the year 2016 and you know viewing the debates as though they were promo exchanges and the conventions as though they were wrestlemanias i, I think it's safe to say nate and i were in an emotionally vulnerable <laughs> position when we made this decision sure. <laughs> and now we've doomed ourselves to 52 of these things what do you think did more damage to the world uh the outcome of the 2016 election or uh, Vince Russo's run running WCW in the late 90s, early 2000s? Ooh. Oh, Vince Russo, hands down. <laughs> if Vince Russo had not put this company out of business, we would still have Southern Wrestling and Fox News would have never picked up. Wow. Also, if, if, if WCW were still a thing, that battle of the billionaires wouldn't have been such a big deal. Donald Trump might not be a WWE Hall of Famer, and he might not have, you know, such a... Uh, large contribution from the McMahon family. So it all it all goes back to Russo when you think about it. No, instead we would have had uh we would have had Ted Turner versus Mark Cuban at Super Brawl. <laughs> right. Oh, that, that, Russo, that would be great. That would be great. Doomed us all. Finally here, I hope this doesn't feel like an ambush, but since you do know a thing or two about fast food, yes. The third man here, Nate, has quite a bit of experience in this arena as he has previously worked for Chick-fil-A and is currently employed by Zaxby's. Oh, wow. And I'm just curious what your 
what your history and your opinion of those two chains are. Well, okay, I've never been... Two chains, the restaurants, not the rappers. Right, <laughs> right I got you. Um, I've never <laughs> been to Zaxby's. Uh, I'm, I've born and raised in Southern California and I've never really, I've, I've rarely left. So it, it, that's not a place I've ever been to. I'd, I'd like to try it. Um, I'm a, I'm a big Chick-fil-A fan. You know, I mean, it certainly has some, it certainly has some controversy, although I think when you, you know, <laughs> like, like, I, I feel like when, when you really kind of investigate that, it's, it's kind of how much of that is. The official corporate stance. How much of that comes from, you know, the leadership? It's always, it's always one of those th- those things that's kind of. I, I think you can kind of make that delineation as a consumer in, in terms of whether or not you wa- you want to go there. But um, I I always have liked Chick Fil A's food and service. I mean, I think it's 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 a really fantastic chain if you just think in terms of of the product that they offer. But yeah, I'm curious. Zaxby's, Nate, what is Zaxby's all about? Uh, well, it, it's hard to describe it, uh, Nick, because as, as most of our listeners would know, at least those uh, in the American South, uh, Zaxby's is indescribably good. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then, <laughs> no, uh, I'm not getting paid for this corporate endorsement. Right. But no, Zaxby's, to me, it it falls somewhere in between a Chick-fil-A and a Buffalo Wild Wings in terms of the menu offerings. Uh, like, like, Zaxby's is all about chicken tenders, chicken wings, uh, chicken salads. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say it's it's on par with a Chick Fil A, but also there, there's uh there's delicious wings of all uh, variety of heats and and flavors. That sounds fantastic. I that that sounds great. I mean, like you know, next time we are the and Zaxby's is open on Sunday, so that's, that's oh a plus there you too. go, yeah. For for us heathens out there, <laughs> hey, so sinners got to eat too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Nick, thank you so much again for coming on. Uh, real quick, where can uh, the listeners find you uh, on social media? And then also, you guys got some uh, tour dates coming up as well. Yeah, you know my podcast, uh, Doughboys. Uh, we uh, on social media on Twitter at Doughboys Pod, but I think you can just check out our, our episodes. Uh, we have new episodes Thursdays on FeralAudio.com or wherever you find podcasts. Um, so yeah, check check that out. It's a real dumb podcast we've been doing for a while, but you know, if you if you love to eat and a lot of people do, maybe you'll respond to it. Perfect. And uh, thank you again to the listener for uh, completing another experiment with us. If this is your first time listening, a full archive of the show is available at fightnetwork.com and liveaudiowrestling.com. And if you've got feedback, you can send it on over to keepa2000pod at gmail.com. And uh, if you want more of me, I'm at Brian Maxman all over the internet. Now, Nate, as always, uh, go ahead and let people know where they can find you and give them the good word to hold them over until our next trial. Yes, well... Shout out, as always, to the listeners for tuning in this week and downloading the show. We appreciate your support. Uh, Also want to give props, or or should I say points, to Brother Nick uh, for his involvement with us in this experiment this week. And I think I'm going to leave us with the wise words of a man who never existed, and that is the one and only Chris Gaines. And I'm going to tie it back to WCW and, and maybe the world at large. Maybe it's the movies. Maybe it's the books. Maybe it's the government and all the other crooks. Maybe it's the drugs. Maybe it's the parents. Maybe it's the gangs or the colors that they're wearing. Maybe it's a fashion. Maybe it's a trend. Maybe it's the future or Vince Russo. Maybe it's the end.
prove to the entire world that at any given time, I could become the WCW champion. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like this. this, this.